Lord, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for your love and your care. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at this section in Hosea that you will show us what you want us to see in Jesus' name. Amen. Hosea chapter 2, starting at verse 14. On the first part of this chapter, we looked at Hosea giving the curses basically on Israel that they were going to go into captivity, that God was going to judge them for their idolatry. And at this point, we have a total change in where he's looking at. We're going to be looking at the millennial kingdom from this point on. Uh, So verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. I will give her her vineyards from thence and to the and the, and the valley of Achor for a door of hope, and she will sing there as in the days of her youth, and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be in, at that day, saith the Lord, that you shall call me Ishi, Ishi and, and, call, and call me no more Baali. For I will take away the names of Baalim out of, the, out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by, by her name. And in that day I will make a covenant for them with the beast of the field and with the fowls of the air, heaven and with the creeping things of the earth. And I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth and will make them lie down safely. And I will betroth you unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth you unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercy. I will even betroth you unto my unto me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, says the Lord, I will hear the heaven, and they shall hear the earth. And the earth shall hear the corn, and the wine, and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel. And I will sow unto her, unto, unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that hath not obtained mercy. And I will say to them which were not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. All right, before this, we were talking about Israel being rebellious, being pictured as a harlot, going after other lovers and being rejected by God. And a matter of fact, he ended the first part that we read was, you're not my people. <laughs> all right, and then all of a sudden, we get to this point where everything changes. And it says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. Now this word allure is actually rather soft because it's literally seduce. He's drawing her without, in a way that she's not going to be able to reject. All right, she's being, he said, I'm going to bring you to me. And we're going to see this when God rescues Israel at the end of the tribulation period, they go to him full, full, full force. They recognize who he is and finally, recognize that he is Messiah. He just came and rescued them from the enemy that was getting ready to destroy them, and they're going to rescue him, and he's just going to draw them to him. And in Revelation, it gives us a picture that they all turn. There's not even a partial turn, but everybody who's alive at that point sees Jesus come, sees the enemy defeated, and turns to him. And this is going to be one of those great revivals. It's going to be one by sight. There's no more faith. They saw Jesus. They saw the deliverance, and they're following him. Now, we don't know if there's a full heart change at that point, but they're recognizing him as Messiah. And this is, he will finally come the way the disciples expected him to come. 
Uh, the disciples had great problems with Jesus not getting rid of Rome. And that's why every time he talked about, I'm going to die, and I'm going to come back in three days, they did not hear and understand what he said because they saw Messiah, King. King's not going to die. He's got to start, he's got to start getting rid of, you know, okay, if he's going to die, it's sometime way out in the future after he's, after he's gotten rid of Rome and we've been, and we're the center of everything and, and looking, for, you know, looking forward to that great day. And this is the way they looked at it. And this is the way the Jews still look at their Messiah. They're looking for a Messiah that's going to give them peace and establish Jerusalem as the center of the world's government. This is why when the Antichrist brings them peace, they're willing to follow him at first. Here's the man bringing us peace. You know, we finally got him. He's here. And because of what they're looking for, they're going to be tricked and not fully understand what they, what they have been tricked into because he will be apparently the Messiah. He's going to bring peace to them in the middle of all this chaos. And we see the chaos all over the place. And everybody's trying to bring peace to them. Everybody's trying to bring peace. Peace will not come to Israel until the Antichrist comes and brings them their peace because he really hates them. All right, he hates them with a passion because they're God's people, just as he hates Christians. When, we become, when you come, become a Christian, you go to the wrong side as far as Satan is concerned, and he has a hatred towards you because you're a soul that he has lost to God. And he's not happy. And this is why he makes life hard on Christians. And the strange thing is, God allows it. Now, that's the one thing I have a hard time understanding. God, why do you allow so much to happen to us? Well, to get us stronger, to teach us. I think the biggest reason is to teach us that we don't truly believe what we think we believe. Because we lie to ourselves all the time. We read the scriptures. We think we believe what, what it says. And we're all, and when everything's good, going good, God is good. God is blessing. Everything's going good. I'm, I love God. God has got my best in, in store for me. And then something bad happens. And all of a sudden we forget Romans 8.28 wasn't stolen out of the Bible. We forget all the verses that say God is good. And God has a plan for us, and he, you know, he makes us lay down, lie down in the midst of our enemies. You know, yea, though I walk through the shadow of the valley of death, I will fear no evil. And then when we go through the shadow of the valley of death, we forget it. And we fear all the evil that we think we see. And that's what God is trying to say. He says, do you truly trust me? Do you truly believe my word? And unfortunately, we, we fail so often. Yeah. Good and bad. Yeah. Remember that part. Yeah. And we forget that Jesus said trials were going to come our way. He said they hated me. They will hate you. He goes, the servant isn't greater than the master. Uh, Romans 8, 28 is a proof that all things work together for good. And yet, when we get into the midst of a trial, how easy is it for us to forget all of God's promises, that he is still in control. You know, God is still in control and sovereign even when it looks like he's not in control and sovereign. And that is easy for us to forget. When our whole life seems to be falling apart and we think we're on our way to be in Job, which none of us have ever had his problems, 
But, you know, we think we're going through a Job-like experience. We need to remember God is still in control. And yet God used it to reach people that would never have been reached otherwise. And this is the way it is for us. When things seem to be going wrong, and I, and I like to use the word seem, and I try to use it in my own life. When things seem to be going wrong, God's still in control. And he has a plan. And this is very important. And here he says, I'm going to lure her and where is he alluring to her to? The wilderness. Hard trials. <laughs> now, and it's there that he's able to speak comfortable to her and be able to bless her and touch her and make her give her comfort. And this is what God does to us. He brings us into the trials to show us that he's still in charge. And it's hard. Don't get me wrong. It's hard when you're in the middle of a trial to to stay focused on God, but it is there to prove, do I truly believe God? I think it's very amazing that people will trust God to give them eternal life in heaven with no problems in heaven, but not trust him here on earth. God, I know you're going to take care of me forever in eternity, but you know, I've got a problem right now here, and you're not meeting this need. You know, what a crazy thought process. God, you can take care of me for eternity, but you can't take care of me now. And God always has a plan. And, and this is what I have learned over the years is God always has a plan. It's always a good plan after I'm through with it. Uh, and he has something to show and teach. And he says, I'm going to bring her, I'm going to seduce her into the wilderness, and I'm going to speak comfortably to her. Now remember, the, the before this is the one that doesn't deserve it, doesn't deserve comfort. Matter of fact, he said, not even my people, get rid of her. So we're a long period of time here where he says, now I'm ready to draw her back. Draw her back to me and, and reveal myself to her. And this is, sometimes God will do that to us where it seems like he leaves us alone. And you know, this is very important, and I've, and I've heard this said in one of the, well, I can't remember where, but they said, when we go through a test, God steps back and lets us go through the test. Because it's to see, are you going to stand on that, on his word? You know, and that's my answer many times when the guys will ask me at the prison, you know, well, help me, you know, we need help on this test. I go, it's not my test, it's your test. I already have my degrees. I don't, I don't need to take your test. All right, this is your test. But God does that with us. He puts us in a test and says, are you going to believe? Now, the hard thing about this is the test is directly related to how well we know God's word and how well we trust him. The more we trust him, the harder the test will be because we are closer to him. My example of that is if you were to give a high school student a kindergarten test, they would probably look at you and laugh. Now, you want me to read the, the cat, the cat uh, sat down you know, you want me to do one plus one? What is this? You know, is this some kind of joke? And conversely, you're not going to give the kindergartner a uh, essay on war and peace <laughs> for their test. They'd never make it through the book number one, 
and they don't even know how to write an essay. So God's testing of us is directly related to the level that we have learned to trust him. So when we're first learning to walk with God, we get relatively simple tests by our later standards, but they're not simple when we go through them. And the longer we walk with God, the harder our test gets. And that's when you look at somebody going, God, I don't want what they're going through. Oh, no, you're not ready for it. But you will one day. And the same token, I've had people that have been walking with God for a long time. Why do they get such easy tests? Well, because they're just starting out. They're still babies. They're still learning to trust God. And God says, I'm going to seduce her, and I'm going to comfort, speak comfortably to her. It says, I will give her vineyards from thence and the valley of Acre for a door of hope, and she shall sing as in the days of her youth when she came up out of the land of Egypt. So he's going to give them vineyards. All right, they have been, been rejecting him, been following him, think, you know, using their gold to serve other gods. God took everything away from him. He says, I'm going to give you vineyards, and I'm going to, uh, and we're going to give you the valley of Acre. Now, the valley of Acre is the valley where Achan was killed. Now, does everybody remember who Achan is? <laughs> Achan was the Israelite that in the battle of, of Jericho, Everything was to be given to God. He took gold and clothing from the battle. And then when they went to attack Ai, which was a very small city, and they didn't ask God about attacking him, they lost several thousand, you know, a couple thousand people's lives because Achan's sin before God. And when they finally found out who, who he was in that valley that they were in, he was stoned and his family. Uh, so this is the valley they're talking about. The Valley of Achor is where Achan was destroyed or, or stoned. Uh, it says, so I will take, you know, I will give you these vineyards and the Valley of Acre, the Valley of Trials and Trouble will be for a door of hope. This is the good news. If God is in charge and he is, every trial is a doorway to hope. Now, hope is not the way we use it. Well, I hope for, maybe wish, and think it might happen. Hope in the Bible is a confident expectation that God is true and will do this. So when he says, when we read hope in the Bible, I have confidence in what it is. It's not even I I hope that this might happen. It is I know this is going to happen because I know who is in control. And this is the beauty of trusting God. I don't have to wish for, hope for, think that something might happen because God is in charge. Now, I may not understand what he's doing. And I have shared with you many times my prayer to God is, God, I don't understand how this can be for good, but you have promised that it's for good and I'm holding on to the promise. And you sit there and you hang on at the end of the rope. There's a knot tied at the end of the rope called Romans 8:28, And you're hanging at the end of the rope waiting for God to rescue and you show you how it's going to be for good. I have been there many times in my life, just holding on to a little knot at the end of the rope, saying, God, here's your promise. I'm holding on to your promise because I don't see how any of this can be for good. And you know what? One thing about it is God never promised that we would see what it is because it may not be for my good. It may be for others' goods. We talked about the hiding place. Uh, Corey and Betsy were put in a very bad spot so that 
others could see their faithfulness with God and be drawn to God. We don't know how our suffering, when we stay faithful to God, will encourage somebody else watching us. And we won't know what it was all about till we get to heaven and God says, this person's in heaven because of what you went through. Or this person got these rewards because of what you went through and, you in, and your steadfastness encouraged them. We look at Fox's Book of Martyrs. You know, we talk about Corey and them. You know, that was only 80 years ago. We talk about Fox's Book of Martyrs that's thousands of years ago and we're still talking about these guys' death and how revival sparked many times when they would die because people would look at their steadfast walk with God as they died. And we're still talking about them. They're still getting rewards for their martyrdom. And people go, wow, you know, God, you, you let them die. Well, you know what? The good news for us is when God lets us die, that's the best thing that can happen to us. We get to go to heaven. There's a better plan. He didn't heal us. He didn't rescue us. He took us home. Now, because I've shared with you, when I was a teenager, I used to tell people the worst thing you can do to me is almost kill me. Because then I have to suffer and still live. <laughs> you know, and, I was, and I was serious about it. If they killed me, I got to go home. And God says, I have got something for you. I have a plan. If God takes our life, it is the best thing that can happen to us. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And the more we believe that, death has no sting for us. Oh, death, where is your sting? Because it has no sting for the, for the Christian. Because if we die, we just step out of this body and continue living. And that's the beautiful thing about it. We just step right into God's presence. And, it, and we're out of the crazy world and everything is good. And we're in the very presence of God. And he says, I'm, I'm here. And then he says, And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth when she came up out of the land of Egypt. Now, there were times when they sang. <laughs> When they first left Egypt, they were singing in joy. We're out of captivity. We're out of captivity. Then they came to the Red Sea and they were grumbling and complaining because Pharaoh was charging after them. They got to the other side of the Red Sea and they were singing again. It's listed as Miriam's song, but the people sang the song. The horse and rider is in the sea and you know, we won't see him anymore. And they were singing. A couple days later, they're thirsty and they're grumbling and griping again. God does a miracle and they're singing again. Kind of amazing. They, these guys almost schizophrenic in the way they walked. You know, they're all happy when God did something and totally bummed out when God didn't appear to be doing anything. Yeah, you know, I was just going to, just what I was going to say. How many of us do the same thing? You know, God, everything's good. Yes, I'm going to sing. I'm going to praise. Oh, God, what, what, what have you putting me through? You now, why is everything going wrong right now? And very important for us to understand all of this. Uh, that God is there and he says, she shall sing as in the days of Egypt. As they go into the thousand year millennial kingdom, there's going to be great joy. It's going to be complete peace. And it says in verse 16, and it shall be in that day, saith the Lord, that you shall call me Ishi. Now Ishi says, 
is uh, my lord or my is is my husband, all right. Uh, in the very beginning, Adam was Ish, and Eve was Isha, husband and wife. And so he goes, you won't you won't be calling me ba- Baali, which means master or lord. You will call me husband. And there's a huge difference between those two terms. Up until this point in time, the Jewish people look at God with somewhat of a terror. They really see him as somebody who's just waiting for them to screw up so that they can be attacked. And they're going, well, as soon as we do something wrong, God's going to hit us over the head with a, you know, with a baseball bat and we're going to be knocked out because we did something wrong. And that's how they looked at it. When Jesus taught the disciples to pray, they went to Jesus and said, teach us to pray. His statement was, our Father. That was not a term the Jewish people used. They did not look as God as Father. They did not look at him as husband. They looked at him as Lord, somebody to be afraid of. And part of it was, that was their condition. Their rules were, their, their covenant was conditional. If you obey me, I will do these things which were all good. If you disobey me, I will do all these things that are, that are bad. And that's how they saw God. Very violent, very upset. They did not see the gracious, loving God that you see all through the Old Testament. Now we do see the angry God that punishes them, but we also see a God that is so gracious and loving. When I hear people say, well, the God of the Old Testament is just a mean, great big meanie. I don't know about that. David wasn't executed for his adultery and murder, and uh, Abraham wasn't put on, put on the shelf for his lying and all the things that he did. You know, God is so merciful and always has been. And then they'll turn around and say, well, God is just nothing but love in the, in the New Testament. And yes, most of the time he's showing love and compassion. Unless you were Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the church and the Holy Spirit and were executed right in church by the Holy Spirit. Or the fig tree that didn't have any figs on it and was, you know, was cursed. Uh, you know, there are plenty of examples of people who did get cursed because God is still holy and righteous. So don't ever think that there's two gods in the Bible. God is so righteous and holy and he still has a standard. If you come to him, he will, he will give you all the mercy and grace that you deserve or don't deserve. <laughs> Uh, but if you pull away from him, he'll let you get all the stuff that you, do, that you do deserve, minus a little bit, because he still has his grace and mercy to try to give you a chance. And this is the beautiful thing about God. He gives people more chances than any of us would ever give somebody, and then some. All right? You know, we're, we look at God, God, why are you letting that person get away with so much? And God's saying, well giving them enough rope to hang themselves or come, come to me, whichever, whichever it's going to be, when people stand before God at the white throne judgment, they're going to know that they deserve the judgment that's coming to them. Because they're going to know every time they rejected God, every time they did something wrong, every time they rejected the opportunity to turn to God, and God's going to say, here, 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 and here, now I'm going to send you where you wanted to go. And other people are going to be, well, you, can't, you turn to me. Here, here's your reward. And this is the beautiful thing about God. You know, Nineveh, 
You know, uh, Jonah was told to go preach to Nineveh. They're going to be destroyed in 40 days. They repented and got an extra 150 years. Now God said they're still going to be punished. Manasseh led his people into severe sin, and God says, your children are going to go into captivity. Now it took a few, king, it's a few of his sons before his children went into captivity, but they did because of God's long-suffering. And Josiah almost, if he could have converted the heart of the people, not just the outward expression, might have had a great revival and pushed it off even further. And this is a beautiful thing. A revival pushes off the judgment of God. But it has to be a heart revival. God honored Josiah in his lifetime. Josiah, you've got a real heart for me. You're the king. Your people aren't going to be destroyed in your lifetime. But down the road, it was, okay, your, your son, your grandson, your great-grandson, and your great-great-grandson aren't serving me, and the nation's going to be destroyed. And this is what God has in store for us. He has great plans. And here, here he says, you know, they, they will sing. And verse 16, in that day, uh, 17, and I will take away the names of the Baalim out of their mouth, and they shall no more remember, be remembered by their name. He's going to take all false gods. During the millennial kingdom, God is going to rule, and it says that it, the, shall, the, the Messiah will rule with an iron rod. They will be forced to be obedient. All right? Remember, everybody who's lived through the tribulation period is entering the millennial kingdom with a sin nature. We will be very fortunate because we have been raptured and we have been glorified and we will have perfect bodies with no sin nature. I'm looking forward to that period of time. We will reign and not have a problem with temptation. We will reign and probably wonder what's wrong with all these stupid you know, people walking around this earth that are rejecting God and needing to be forced to follow him. You know, maybe we'll have forgotten how dumb we were while we were, <laughs> while we were walking. Uh, maybe not. <laughs> maybe we'll understand. Maybe we'll be more sympathetic to them. Uh, but he says, I will take away all the foreign gods, all other gods away from their heart. He says, in that day I will make a covenant with them, for them, with the beast of the field and with the fowls of the heaven and with the creeping things of the ground. So he goes to the animals and makes them tame. Oh, this is a beautiful picture. Adam and Eve were created and the animals were basically pets for them, all animals. Even the ones that we consider ferocious animals weren't ferocious back then. They all ate fruits and vegetables and not flesh. And they were pets. You know, uh, and then they fell. And things started to happen. That's how bad man's sin was. Everything in this world changed. The animals became vicious. The, the weather became vicious. The actual ground started becoming an enemy to the people. You know, we got thorns and, thorns and thistles and we, weeds instead of nice crops. And everything changed because of their sin. And God says, during the millennial kingdom, he's going to make a covenant with the animals. You all are going to be nice to each other and to others. And this is where we're told that the that the wolf will lay down with the lion, uh, with the with the 
with the lamb and the children can play on the ass nest and not be not be be, be stung you know everything will be similar to what <laughs> it was in Eden as far as the animals are concerned the animals will be back to being vegetarian during that period of time we'll probably be vegetarians of course we have our glorified bodies we put, we won't need to eat but the people will have that after the flood people were given permission to meet, eat meat before that we were vegetarians like everything else and real wickedness and and horrors started when things started killing each other at that point in time and They did sacrifices, but not necessarily eating it. They were burnt offerings. Uh, now, I'm not going to say they weren't. We weren't permitted to until after the flood in verse 9. And that is the first time God says that all the animals are meat unto you. Now, I'm not going to say that the evil ones weren't eating meat and everything, but we were not permitted to eat meat until after the flood. Uh, and, you know, especially during Adam and Eve's specific time, I don't think they wanted to kill any of those animals. Those, those were their pets. You know, uh, so if you didn't, you don't, most people can't even imagine killing their pet and eating their pet. That's why most farmers and stuff don't name their animals. <laughs> because if they end up on the dinner table, they don't want to go, well, here, here's Henrietta sitting on the table uh, for, for dinner tonight. Uh, you know, uh, you know, and so, you know, we don't usually name, you know, name the animals we're going to eat. <laughs> uh, but he says, I'm going to make a covenant with the beasts. And he says, I will break the bow and the sword and battle out of the earth and will make them lie down safely. So that for the millennial kingdom, there will be no war. No war, no vicious animals, a total time of peace. And God, in making sure that people are be behaving. What is one of the biggest lies that Satan uses right now? That if the world was just perfect, nobody would have a problem. Nobody would do anything wrong if everything was just perfect. That's his last big lie, because all of his other lies have been proved to be lies over and over and over again. And whether you want to call it nirvana or utopia or... You know, the age of Aquarius, whatever term you want to use for this utopia that we're looking for someday. The millennial kingdom is the proof that man still will not be happy, even in a utopia that lasts a thousand years. And they will still, at the end of the thousand years, revolt against God in violence. No wars, no animals killing people. Everything's going good. You've got more than everything you want. The ground is apparently going to give back its full, full strength, and you're actually going to be able to harvest your food. There's going to be no, nobody hungry. And yet, at the end of the millennial kingdom, when Satan is released for the last hurrah, he finds people that are willing to go against God. So it's that last proof that even in a perfect world, man will sin and do what's wrong. And God is laying it out. And people are buying Satan's lie. Well, every, you know, well if it was just, you know, people are really basically good, and you know, there's, no, there's, nothing, there's no sin nature in them. They're, they're good people. If you just gave them the right environment, they'd be good. You know, I don't know, but 
I never taught any of my kids how to be selfish and, and uh, how to be mean to other, other people. And yet they did it every single time. All four of my kids were mean to each other at some point. All of them were selfish and wanted the toy that somebody else was playing, playing with. And we never did teach them to want the toy that somebody else was playing with. They just did it. We are not good in the inner, innermost being on us. Uh, and yet, that is the lie. That is the lie that's being told to this world right now. We're all just basically good. If we just left each other alone, we'd be nice to each other. If there just weren't these handful of mean people you know, causing problems, we'd all, we'd all just get along with no problems. It's never happened in the past. The, the promise is that it won't happen in the future. He will make it happen for a thousand years, but it won't stop man from wanting to sin, wanting to do harm. And this is the sad thing. God has gotten rid of the vicious animals. He's gotten rid of the war. And it says, and then after that, he says, I will betroth her to me forever. I will betroth you unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercy. So this wife that had been walking in adultery, turning away from him, during the millennial kingdom, God says, you are mine. You are my bride, my wife. What's to be married to? He's going to literally marry Israel to himself. Now, so the church is the bride of Christ. Israel, during this period of time, will be married to God for those that are true Israel. In other words, they're going to be married, they're going to be part of the church and we're part of them, depending on how you want to look at it. All right. Now, again, we don't want to get into this idea that we replace Israel, but we are engrafted into the root of the olive tree in Scripture. That means the olive tree represents Israel. We are engrafted into the root of the olive tree and we're called the wild branch that's engrafted into the root of the olive tree. The olive tree is the only tree that if you engraft something into it, it changes the consistency of, of, the, of the branch engrafted into it. So it makes that wild branch into a tame producing uh, olive branch. Every other tree that you engraft into, the branch that you engraft maintains its, its uh, characteristics. Uh, we lived in a place in Virginia that had, I think it was a pear tree, and somebody had engrafted an apple, a plum, and something else into the, into the pear tree. Well, we had apples, pears, and plums, and, and uh, you know, the strange thing was, everything tasted like pears because it was getting the roots and nutrients from the, from the pear. Now, they still tasted a little bit like an apple, but they had pear flavoring to them because the roots that were feeding them were pear. All right, but it grew apples and plums and whatever else was, I can't remember, I do know there were apples, but there were like four different, you know, it was the strangest tree you could ever see because there's all kinds of different fruit all over this tree. Uh, multi, well, yeah, we don't usually multi-graph different, different trees into it. Yeah, right, different, maybe a different type of pear or, or another pear tree, but, but we as the church are engrafted into the root of the olive tree. So we are partially Israel. 
And this is where replacement theology starts. Well, see, we're engrafted in the root. We become Israel. We replace. No, we never replace Israel. Here, God's saying, Israel is mine. I am not getting rid of her. She has been adulterous. I've sent her away. I've set her by the wayside, but I am buying her back. When we get into chapter 3, we're going to see the picture of Hosea buying his, his wife back, and it's exactly a picture of what's going on here. And we're going to see this beautiful activity. And he says, I am going to betroth her in righteousness and judgment, loving kindness and mercy. So God is saying, I, I am going to give grace. She's going to be mine. For a thousand years, there's going to be this perfect marriage where it's kind of doing it by force <laughs> for the most part. There will be people that are honestly following him. Don't get me wrong. There will be the remnant following him, and then there's going to be those that are going to be forced to obey. And this is, you know, how many times have we thought, well, if I just saw God, if I just saw the miracles, I would follow him. No, we'd be just like all the other, other people who saw the miracles and still rejected God. And for a millennial kingdom, for a thousand years, people are going to see the power of God in perfect reigning with no wars, no trials, no, no, no stealing, no, no harm coming to one another. And yet, they're going to reject God at the end of that time. Huh? Anybody who's alive, anybody who's lived through the millennial, who's lived through the tribulation period and did not take the mark of the beast will go enter into the millennial kingdom. Most of them will be Jews. Because <laughs> uh, that's who's been protected, that's who had, who, who's had their mark on them. But there'll be, I'm sure there'll be a handful of Gentiles that have converted, probably going to be living in Jerusalem at that point in time. There'll be a handful of people in, in the Gentile world. But anybody who's lived through the tribulation period without taking the mark, will enter into the tribulation period. Everybody who has taken the mark will be cast into hell, waiting for the white throne judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom because they've, they've sealed their fate. Taking the mark of the beast is, 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 is sealing your fate. Having said that, all these people who are worried about yes, accidentally taking the mark, you know, they're going... The virus, you know, the, the, yeah. the vaccine has some marker in it and you're going, to be, you're going to be this, that, or the other thing. You're not going to accidentally take the mark. Now, you could be fooled, you know, but it will be clear that what you're doing is taking something that is going to be very clearly needed. And the world is going to say, this sounds really good to me. You know, the money has gone away. People are stealing identities. I like the idea of having all my information stuck in my hand or my forehead. I don't think so. I don't think it'll happen because in Revelation it tells that God marks his people with a mark that they cannot be harmed. So God has his mark on there. Now whether it's seen or not, we don't know, but God sees it. So I'm, they're going to be protected from being forced. But if it somehow got to be where you were forced, no, you would not be, you know, you didn't, you didn't make the decision. You know, I could make a case that you made your decision by rejecting God before the rapture and, and deserve whatever you got, uh, but I don't think that would be the case. It's very clear that that mark is a conscious decision 
that marks you for the Antichrist. And now some people will make it because it just sounds really good. Oh, yeah. All right. We already see how it's going to be, be something that people are going to say is really good. You know, we're seeing identity theft. We're seeing, we're seeing all these things to, to not have to carry cards around and numbers around and have a, you know, an imprinted chip in my hand that just says, Here, here's my identification. And you know, we're looking at vaccine passports, proving, proving that we have all of our stuff. A chip like that is going to be the perfect answer to something of that nature. Uh, so there's, it's going to, when it's introduced, it's going to be embraced by the world. It's going to sound like the answer to all their problems. Nobody can steal from me anymore. Nobody can steal, you know, nobody can take my identity and I can't lose my wallet. I can't lose my, I can't lose my identification. I can't lose my insurance cards. There's no question on whether I've got all the identity that I need. When it comes, it's going to sound so perfect on it. Oh, we've, that chip is not the mark of the beast, but yes, it's... I'm not saying the mark of the beast, but that's just... The technology is there. It's going to sound perfect. When, they inter, when the Antichrist inter, introduces, it's going to sound perfect. You know, if you get lost, you know, if you disappear, we can... Your child disappears, we can find them. Uh, you, won't lose, you, you won't lose your identity. You won't lose you know, your, your funds. You won't lose your, your credit card, you know. All these, all these good-sounding things. All of the stuff that we're playing with in this period of time is going to be used to sell the need for this mark. Uh, the economy is so bad, the hyperinflation is so bad that we're going to give you this mark so that you can be given your allotment of, of food because you're not, going to need, you're not going to need money because the Bible tells us that a bag of gold will buy a, buy a loaf of bread. You know, and I love it when I hear all these people going, I'm, I'm investing in gold because gold will never go out with no value. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that bread will be the, the thing that you're willing to give anything for because there's so little food. Yeah, you can't eat the gold. You know, and it's, you know, I heard a story, you know, how, how much would you pay for a cup of water? Well, Right now, not a whole lot. You've been in the Sierra Desert for four days without water. How much, how much will you pay for that cup of water when you haven't had water for four days? And what's the time frame for when this happens? What, what period are we in? We're in the Millennial Kingdom at this moment. Well, we won't. We will be at the Millennial Kingdom, but we'll be ruling with Christ. But at the same time, those that aren't in Christ will be paying these high fees? That, that's during the tribulation period. Okay. During the tribulation period, the whole world falls apart. The economic system, uh, Satan is given not free access and free roam, but he's given a lot more ro roaming than a he, and a longer chain. We will be raptured. We will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb during that period of time, during the worst. Now, I believe we're going to face things before the, before the tribulation starts. Before we're taken out and the tribulation period starts, I think things are going to get bad for Christians. And then we'll be taken out. And then things really get bad. And again, Satan is... A lot of people think that Satan's given full control during the, during the tribulation period. He isn't because if he was given full control, everybody would be dead. 
He doesn't, he gets to kill a lot of people. They get to kill a lot of people. 66% of the population dies in the book of Revelation. Just with the numbers we're told. All right. But he doesn't get to full reign. He gets a lot of leeway. The Holy Spirit has been removed in its direct presence with people. So people are living out the sin that they want to live. It will be a dog-eat-dog world that we cannot even, really can't even comprehend. Those who are strong will be taking advantage of those that are weak and abusing them in ways that our movies and our, and our things not even close to imagining as bad as those get. People will be enslaved, they will be abused, they will be killed. You know, think about the worst pictures you've ever seen in any of these apocalyptic movies and then multiply it. And because they're not even close to what it's going to be like when, when there is no good influence. Now, the church is having a hard time influencing this world and it's getting worse and worse with each passing day, but we are influencing the world. We are keeping the evil at bay a little bit. We're, we're not very successful anymore and we're getting less successful with each passing year, but the salt in the church is holding back the evil that would come. Once the church is taken out, evil will run rampant. Most of the people that don't take the mark of the beast that get evangelized by the 144,000 Jewish converts will be killed. Very few people are going to enter into the millennial kingdom without having taken the mark of the beast. It'll be a very, very small amount, a very small remnant that is going to make it through. Might have some Jews, uh, Gentiles with the Jews. We do know it's going to be mostly Gen uh, Jews because God's going to protect them. Uh, and we know how easy it would be for Satan to find anybody because how easy is it to find people? I'm amazed when they can't find people in our day and age. Now, the person had a phone, but we couldn't find them. Why didn't you ping their phone? It would be a piece of cake. So the first thing that happens when it becomes illegal to be a Christian, lose your phone. Do not keep your phone around. Do not drive a car because cars have IP addresses on them. Your old, old cars would be okay. The ones without computers, the easy ones to fix, the easy ones to fix are, other than the fact you can't find parts. And it says in verse 20, And I will betroth you unto me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. He goes, you're going to be faithful. Before you were following other gods, you were always, always getting into whoredom. Now you're going to follow me faithfully. You're going to be a good wife for that period of time, is what he's telling Israel. You're not going to follow other gods because I've removed their name. You know, I, I can hardly picture what this is going to be like. You know, it's just because everything we think of is tainted. Even when we think of something good, there's tainted, it's tainted by sin. And this period of time does not appear to be tainted by sin. Everything is as close to perfect as it can be during the millennial kingdom. Now, during the, during the new heaven and earth, everything is perfect because he destroys everything and starts all over with an untainted world. But he, rules with iron. he rules with that iron rod and makes people. He takes away the names of the idols. He takes a, makes a covenant with the animals. He gets rid of the wars. People are still going to want to sin. And I really have this picture of thought police being there. You know, every time somebody thinks that they want to do something wrong, there'll be an angel or somebody knocking at your door saying, no, 
You're not doing that. That's the iron rod. So that when you get to the end of the millennial kingdom, all these people who have been wanting to sin and having been stopped are going to be, all right, here's our chance to get, get, throw off this oppressive government that wouldn't let us do what we wanted to do. We wanted to harm, maim, and do all, all kinds of bad things, and they wouldn't let us do it. And it's kind of amazing, but that is the way our world thinks. If you're not letting me do what I want to do, I know it might hurt somebody, but I want to do it, so you should let me do it. Verse 21, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will hear, saith the Lord, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth. God says, I will hear. I will hear their call, and they're going to hear me. You know, and I think this literally means they're going to hear God in a way that we don't, don't hear in this day and age. Uh, I think part of the fact that we don't hear God is, number one, we don't listen. We don't expect to. All through the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, God spoke to people. And he literally spoke to people. I have heard God speak to me one time in my lifetime, but only one time. Now, there are a couple times when I almost thought I heard something, but I wasn't absolutely sure. But there was one time I'm sure I heard. And I have no problem with that. I have no problem with somebody can tell me that it, they've heard from God and it matches Scripture. Then I have no problem that they've heard from God. Now, if they tell me they've heard from God and it doesn't match what Scripture says, we're going to have a hard time for convincing me that you, that you heard from God. You might have heard something, but it wasn't God or an angel. It was the fallen angels that you heard. Because God says his word will last. His word will stand. So he's never going to tell us to do something that violates his word. Now, having said that, we're in the book of Hosea, where Hosea the prophet was told to go, mar to go marry a, a harlot. So it's hard. You know, Abraham was told to go offer Isaac. Now, he didn't have to, you know, God stopped him from it. But we look at things and we go, God, how could you have told people to do those things? And I don't know. I don't know that I could have been Abraham and said, God, I know that you don't take human sacrifices. I, I'm, it can't be your word that I'm hearing. And yet he understood that it was God's word. Now, again, the more we know God's voice, the more we're going to understand that it's him. And there are times when God tells us to do things that make no sense. All right? Or don't do something that makes sense. You know, we need to trust him and not our own, on our own mindset. And we don't know. Maybe God's... There have been times when I have felt the, the unction that I had to say something, and I'm going, it makes no sense to say something. And then had somebody say, that's exactly what I needed to hear. Didn't mean anything to me. But the person that it was meant for, it meant everything for. And, you know, it was some silly phrase. You know, I don't even remember what it was at the time. Uh, you know, but God will do things. He doesn't get stuck in a box. He will do things to, to bless people. He will do things to shake them up. Uh, you know, and this is the beauty of God. He says, oh, you need, you need to see this to believe that I'm God? Let me show it to you. As long as it's not sinful, let me show it to you. All right? Uh, I know an event in a, in a church where this man came to church. He, the person who invited, invited him, you'll never know what you're going to see in, in this church. And he goes, well, I don't know. And he goes, well, I bet I'm not going to see line dancing in the church. Well, there was a country group singing up front. They had never done, broke out in a dance. And all the times that they had ever sang at the church, they, they were one of the church groups, that night they broke out in a line dance. 
just so that that guy would see God being God. Now, there were a lot of people that criticized them for doing that. But God has, has humor. He will do what it takes to grab people's attention and say, well, you don't think I can do that? There was nothing wrong with doing a line dance in church. It's a strange place for doing a, a line dance, but they just broke out in a, in a quick, it wasn't a long one, it was just a quick, you know, few steps, and it wasn't even planned. They just broke out into a line dance that night for that person sitting in the audience that wanted to see what God would do. Now, would God always do that? No. But for that particular person, because that would mean something to that person, that grabbed their attention. So what will God do? Whatever it takes that is not sinful. Because God will never violate his rules. Because his rules are part of his character, and he will never violate his character. God will never lie, because he is truth. So he will not, cannot lie. And that's hard for people to understand, when, because we're fallen. We go, well, everybody lies. Not God. God will never lie. You know, he will always do what's good. Now, his idea of good may be very different than our idea of good because he sees the beginning from the end. He knows that what he does here will be good someplace down, in, down the road, even though I can't see that being good. But he says, I know that it's good, just trust me. And because he doesn't lie, we need to trust him. And this is the beauty of it. How much of the word of God is true? All of it. If any of the word of God is not true, it's not God's word and it's a worthless book. And this is the very important thing. I was talking with somebody the other day, and he goes, well, you really can't believe all that stuff at the beginning of the Bible. I'm going, why not? Well, because, you know, science said, no. I go, science doesn't say it's wrong. wrong. And I'm going to tell you even worse is, if you don't believe that, why do you believe any of it? Because if I'm trying to decide what is true and what is not true in the Bible, I have elevated myself to God. I am the arbitrator of what is right and what is wrong, which means... I'm no longer trusting God. I'm saying I'm God. I'm the one with supreme ability to be able to determine what's right and wrong. And this is why every word of this book must be true or it is a worthless book. We cannot believe any of it if we do not believe all of it. And it's a critical, critical thing to, to understand because if it's, any of it's not true, I have nothing to stand on. You know, Because what is right and what is wrong? If any of it's wrong, then I, then I have nothing to stand on. And the good news is I've only been studying it for 50 years and I have found no errors in it. Nothing that contradicts science, true science, nothing that contradicts true philosophy, nothing that contradicts true psychology. Everything that is true, it does not contradict. Now it contradicts a lot of false teachings and a lot of bad teaching but it doesn't contradict anything that's true. And this is the beauty of it. And then it says the, in verse 22, and the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel, which means God sows. And I will sow her into the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that hath not obtained mercy. And I will say to them, which were not my people, you are my people, and, and they shall say, you are my God. The earth will give forth abundantly. This, this is going to be a perfect time. Nice animals, all of them. 
the earth giving back its full, full force, no wars, nobody, nobody causing he headaches because of their sin, and yet they will reject God at the end of it. Now we don't see that here, we see that in Revelation. At the end of the millennial kingdom, Satan is released and the people rebel. Now, we don't know how many of the people, because it doesn't say, and Satan gathers up an entire army, a large army, to go against God. And how many people are there? Well, we've had a thousand years of good productivity uh, where people are living older because it says in the prophets that if you live to be a hundred, you, you know, if you die at a hundred, you'll be considered a child during the millennial kingdom. So we're returning back to the li lifespan of the patriarchs of the, of the very beginning. People are going to live to close to a thousand years. So most of the people during the millennial kingdom will live for the entire millennial kingdom and be able to worship God. There will be people that say, will be able to tell their great, 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 great grandchildren, I remember when the Messiah delivered us. I remember when there was a war. What's a war? It'll sound like fairy tales because there haven't been any wars. There haven't been any thefts. There haven't been any de you know, major deaths. And they're going to go, I remember when these things happened. They're going to look at them like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. What were you smoking back then that you, could, that you saw all these bad things? But all of this will come in and they will gain mercy and God will say, you are my people. You're mine again. I put you on the shelf, but now you're mine. Israel has been put aside. They rejected the Messiah. We're in the period of the Gentiles right now, the church age, the age of the Gentiles. It's been going on for about 2,000 years. And it, the millennial kingdom will be all about the Jewish people again. Well, the tribulation in the millennial kingdom will be all about the Jewish people again. And they will follow after their God. And he'll say, you are mine. So, good news. Millennial kingdom's coming. We, as the church, will have been raptured. We will have our glorified bodies. And we will reign with Christ. We will not be tempted. We will not have problems. We will be part of the ruling, ruling class. And whatever that means, we will be in charge with Jesus. And everything will be perfect for us. We get to the, we get to the end and we're going to be standing next to Jesus looking at, the, at all those fools that are joining up with Satan. And Jesus speaks and it's over. There's going to be two battles that he just speaks and the war's over. When he first comes back, he speaks and the war's over. He comes back at the end and he just speaks and the war's, you know, they come out after him and he just speaks and the war's over. The power of God is in his, in his words. All he's got to do is say the word. And when he comes to the end of the millennial kingdom and he dissolves and it has the white, great white throne judgment and death in Hades is thrown into hell, the lake of fire, and all the people are in the lake of fire, he lets go with his hand protecting this world and everything explodes in fire. And that is real easy. We already know the damage of, a, of an atom. Just imagine every atom in the universe having God take his hand off it and exploding. That will be one big explosion. Supernova. Yes, big supernova. It'll destroy everything. And then he creates a new heaven and earth. Perfect for us to dwell in for eternity. And new Jerusalem comes out of, out of the heavens 
onto this world, and it's just a small city, 1,500 1, 1, uh, 1, 1, miles e every direction in a cube or a triangle uh, or, or a pyramid, we don't know, but it's got 1,500 square feet base and 1,500 feet up in the air. Good thing it's a new, new heaven and earth because that would be way out of the air. Uh, but all of this will come and that will be the new Jerusalem, his bride adorned. That will be our dwelling place. That will be where our mansions are. Now, when we say mansion, don't think of a great big hill, uh, uh, building on the top of a hill. Uh, mansions are the, the, a suite of rooms, all right, is what they mean on that, in that verse. So you talk about mansions, you know, it'd be, you know, some people have just a small group of rooms. Some people might, you know, by our rewards, have an entire floor in, in heaven. Others, with very few rewards, will just have a, you know, I kind of almost think some people might have studios. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, the point is, you know, yeah. we'll be happy with whatever we get. But there are rewards in heaven, and we don't understand what rewards will mean in heaven. Yeah, everything could be totally different than what we think. All right, we're going to end here. Lord, we just thank you for the picture of the millennial kingdom. Lord, for how much you love us and care for us, that you have a perfect world coming for us at the end. We just ask you to bless us. Lord, we ask that there's anybody listening that doesn't know you, that they will prepare their hearts to be taken out of this world by accepting you as their Lord and Savior, recognizing their sin and turning to you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured of eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.